Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us. And ahead on today's program, tank triumph, a significant development in the Ukraine war. Berlin approving leopard tank shipments to Ukraine. The U.S. also reportedly reversing course and okaying Abrams tank deliveries to Kiev as well. We're going to have team coverage just ahead. Plus, cloudy forecast. Microsoft beating earnings expectations, but also warning of a cloud computing slowdown. Sales growth slowing as well. We'll discuss what all of this means for big tech coming up. And Microsoft's uncertain outlook weighing on the Nasdaq. It is set to fall for a second straight session. Dow and S&P futures are lower as well. And Europe is lower, as you can see. Pretty much red arrows across the board. This as debate grows over where stocks go from here after a strong 2023 start. A J.P. Morgan strategist says that U.S. stocks could drop 10 percent or more in the months ahead. We will hear from Andrew Slimmon of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, who has a a bit more optimistic take. We'll talk to him about that. Earnings sure to play a crucial role in the market's direction going forward. Shares of the aerospace giant Boeing set to fall more than 2%, about 2.5% right now, after missing on both the top and bottom lines. IBM and Tesla report their Q4 results later today. We'll have more on the markets later in the program. But first, the latest on the Ukraine war. After months of international squabbling, Germany has agreed to beef up Ukraine's military capabilities by sending in tanks. And two sources tell CNN that the United States is also ready to make a similar move. Germany's defense minister said that 14 Leopard 2 tanks will arrive in Ukraine in about three months. Chancellor Olaf Scholz telling lawmakers that the decision followed intensive talks with allies. This needed a very intensive uh, consultation with our international partners and allies, and I want to express that it was correct, and it is correct that we uh, we didn't allow to get pushed, but uh, that uh, we um, we continue and uh, always insist on very close cooperation. Russia, meantime, describing the German announcement as extremely dangerous and says that it, quote, moves the conflict to a new level of confrontation. Salma Abdelaziz joins me now. Salma, what more can you tell us about ultimately what led to this decision from Germany? Because on the one hand, you could argue finally the German chancellor there bowing to international pressure. And yet on the other hand, you could argue Germany got exactly what they had been asking for all along, which is the U.S. to step up its support as well. So what more can you tell us about ultimately what led to this decision? Look, throughout this conflict, uh, the European allies, the United States, the West that has backed Ukraine has really been in lockstep. This is one of these moments where I wouldn't say we saw divisions, but maybe we saw a difference of opinion, a difference in experience, a difference in procedure. And I think absolutely the German chancellor would disagree uh, with any idea that he has bowed down to pressure. What Germany says and what the chancellor said in parliament today when he addressed his own countrymen, but not just his own countrymen, also sent kind of a message to his partners is 
we did this in consultation with our partners. This is absolutely not a unilateral action. That was his message. This is a break from decades-long traditions, but we are not doing it on our own. We are doing it with our friends, and do not be afraid. That makes it the correct decision. Trust your government. Of course, this announcement welcomed by the United States, by European allies. It does begin to move forward, if you will, the modernization of Ukraine's war. President Zelensky has been pleading for these weapons now for weeks, for months. This is very much an infantry war. On those front lines, it is inch by inch. It is foot soldiers fighting behind tanks. And for Ukraine, so far, those tanks have been Soviet-era, outdated pieces of machinery that are difficult to maintain. And now, it seems, there are these steps coming, multiple European countries, the United States as well, providing these tanks, beginning to give the training as soon as possible in Germany on those new Leopard tanks that could be on the front lines in as little as three months, But again, don't expect this to change the outcome very quickly. In particular, the Abrams tanks from the United States, that could require more training, more time before they get to the front lines. And time is of the essence here. What President Zelensky is preparing for, what the Ukrainian army is preparing for, is a potential spring offensive from Russia that could come in weeks. That means those tanks might not make a difference right then. But it does show a major geopolitical shift. It does show a major strategy shift. And it does show that Germany now can, or the German chancellor now can, say we've done this on our own time, in our own way, with and alongside our partners. Sama, I think you make a great point there, both about why these tanks are needed, according to the Ukrainians, but also how long it will likely take, at least for the Abrams, to actually be on the ground there easily months. But I do wonder, do you think now that we have had this announcement from Germany, a pretty significant shift, does that open the floodgates, so to speak, so that other nations feel encouraged to also send tanks and perhaps those are on the ground a bit sooner? That's a very good question. That's a very good point. I do think throughout this conflict, we have seen times in which the allies will say, look, that's absolutely not on the table. Something like tanks, something like long range missiles, some certain types of air defense systems. And then the reality on the ground changes that. Then the calculus on the ground makes that red line, if you will, those things that are off the table, it suddenly brings them to the table. And Ukraine has been used to doing this throughout the conflict. We've almost hit a year now. And what happens is over and over again, Ukraine's military, President Zelensky, they assess what they need on the front lines. They come back to their partners and they plead and they ask and they build a wish list. So yes, you're going to hear from President Zelensky today. Thank you. But he's also going to say, it's not enough. I need more tanks. If you do the math, it's a few dozen tanks potentially that over the course of a few months might end up on those front lines. President Zelensky says he needs 300 tanks. We're nowhere near that number. He says those 300 tanks could replace some 3,000 Soviet-era tanks. And the other calculus here absolutely is that Ukraine feels that it is defending NATO, that it is defending democratic ideals, that it is on the front line of Russian aggression. And in some ways that shift has been made as well by European partners who in the past were concerned and were constantly making this calculus, this uh, balancing act between supporting Ukraine, giving it the weapons it needs, but at the same time, not trying to widen or deepen that conflict. Clearly that calculus being made over the the course of the last few days in DC and Berlin. And the message here is is clear. Ukraine needs more and we will give it more. Sama Abdaliz, great to have you today. Thank you. And by the way, later in the show, we're going to hear the reaction of a former Ukrainian defense minister that's coming up in about 15 minutes. Stay with us.
And CNN has also learned that the Biden administration is now finalizing plans to send about 30 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Natasha Bertrand uh, joins us with the latest. Natasha, good to have you on the program. So help me understand the timeline here. How soon before we actually expect to get this announcement uh, from the Biden administration? Well, Rahel, interestingly, the White House actually just announced that the president will be giving remarks at noon today about continued U.S. support to Ukraine. And as we reported yesterday, we have been expecting an announcement by the administration this week about its decision to commit as many as 30 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, a complete 180, I should note, from where the administration was just last week when they were briefing reporters very consistently about the fact that they believe that the Abrams tanks are not necessarily what Ukraine needs at this moment. And that is because they were saying that these are very difficult and complex systems to maintain, to operate, and that the Ukrainians would require quite a bit of training to use them before they actually became operational on the ground there. But now we are learning that after a number of conversations, very intense diplomatic discussions between U.S. and German officials over the last several days, there has been somewhat of a breakthrough in this diplomatic standoff. Because if you'll recall, Germany had said that they would not send their Leopard tanks to Ukraine if the United States did not also send its Abrams tanks. So over the last several days, the U.S. has been trying to convince Germany to send their Leopard tanks. And now it appears that they have decided that even despite all of those logistical issues, the very real possibility that these tanks will break down on the field in Ukraine because they are very complex and very difficult to maintain, that they will take the step of committing these tanks because they feel as though it is just a very necessary tool in the Ukrainians' arsenal at this moment to defend against a potential Russian offensive in the spring and, of course, launch their own counteroffensive because, as Salma laid out uh, very well earlier, this is a very slow-grinding kind of infantry war that will, that with Western tanks, the Ukrainians will be able to kind of take the fight directly to the Russians and hopefully break through their defensive lines there for help. Natasha, I think you laid out very well there sort of what was happening behind the scenes, because I think some might have been sort of scratching their head after this announcement from the U.S. or this expected announcement from the U.S. uh, because of all of those reasons you listed there, why they initially said that they did not believe these, these were the right tanks, scratching their heads, wondering, Well, what happened? So what happens now? Let's assume at noon Eastern, we get the announcement from the Biden administration. What happens next and how soon before these tanks are actually on the ground? That is still unclear. So what we have been told by U.S. officials is that these tanks could take months to end up on the ground in Ukraine because they're difficult to transport. There are a number of logistical issues that the U.S. has to test to grapple with in terms of actually getting them on the ground there before the U.S. Uh, can actually, before the Ukrainians, I should say, can actually operate them. And importantly, the Ukrainians will have to undergo significant training before they're able to use these tanks effectively because tank warfare, as we've been told, by many uh, military officials is a very different style of fighting. These are systems that are very, very large, over 70 tons, and they're extremely complicated. They also break down very easily. So we are told that the U.S. is going to be sending, along with these tanks, recovery vehicles that essentially tow these systems out of the battlefield if they need to be repaired, thereby allowing the Ukrainians uh, to put them back into action. But this is all going to be a very heavy lift, and it could be as many as three months, uh, if not more, likely more before we see them actually in battle. Rahel. We'll likely learn a lot more in about three hours when we expect to hear from the president. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. 
Let's turn to the economy a bit. Earnings season is in full swing. Not quite a home run, though, for Microsoft. The tech giant saw revenue in the most recent quarter rise a modest 2% from the year prior, but also posted a double-digit percentage drop in profit amid economic uncertainty and slowing demand for personal computers. CNN chief business correspondent Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, you know, it was just last week that we heard from uh, the CEO Satya Nadella talking about the normalizing demand for Microsoft and tech players. What else did we learn when the company reported? Look, we learned this was the slowest revenue growth since 2016, and you noted that profit drop. So you can see sort of these headwinds. The CEO called it a macroeconomic uncertainty starting to come at play here. And it was really toward the very end of the quarter when the CFO started talking to uh, analysts and said that deceleration could continue into the first quarter uh, and moving forward. Uh, That's when overnight in pre-market trading, the stock started to decline here. Uh, The company recently announced 10,000 layoffs. Of course, we have seen that technology has been the leading edge of layoffs. But I would point out that these are companies that have grown and profited handsomely during um, during the covid uh, crisis. And now you use the word normalizing. I think that's exactly right. Starting to normalize uh, what demand's going to look like heading into next year. Um, there was a lot of discussion, the bull and bear camp having a big discussion this morning about um, the intelligent cloud business, which includes that Azure uh, cloud computing unit. And that did well. Right. So watching that space and even if they're slowing there going forward, it still is a solid part of the um, part of the business. But revenue deceleration is what the big concern is moving forward here. So that's what we're watching. The stock down 15 percent over the past year or so. Big debate, bull bear debate today about what those what those earnings mean. But again, the slowest the slowest sales growth since 2016. That's notable. And Christina, I'd love for you, I know you mentioned it quickly there, I'd love for you to put a fine point on that because on the one hand, as you say, you have some some slowing profit there, but also the cloud computing business was a bit of a bright spot for Microsoft. It was. And you look at profits there, uh, the overall cloud computing business, the uh, intelligent cloud business grew 18 percent. That Azure segment grew 38 percent. And that beat uh, analyst expectations. So I think that's why you saw first a pop in the stock and then now backing off a little bit here. So we'll see where it settles off. But this is a big company with a lot of moving parts here. And it's kind of one of the first big names we've heard in the reporting season, as so many people are concerned about these companies that did very, very well during the pandemic, these tech companies that did very, very well during the pandemic. They hired, uh, you know, on a hiring spree and now we're starting to maybe unwind a little bit of that. So this is sort of the first big name we've seen in that in that arena. And Christine, it's just so interesting because you could also argue that this is a, an industry, the tech industry, that saw about a decade of really strong growth. And this is now at least thus far starting to look like this could be a different phase. Christine Romans, thank you. Nice to see you. Likewise. Starting at Tesla, another tech player, of course. The Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, in federal court defending himself against a class action lawsuit over his infamous funding secured tweet. Remember this in 2018? Well, investors claim that that cost them millions of dollars. Acting on that tweet cost them millions of dollars. After yesterday's hearing, Musk asked reporters what they thought of his testimony. But I'm, I'm curious, what do you guys think? Uh, we weren't listening. Oh, okay. Well, How'd it go? Feel good about how it went? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think so. All right. Claire Duffy joins me now. Claire, it's not every day that the CEO asks reporters what they thought of his testimony, but we'll leave that for another day. Help me understand what's at stake for Musk here. Right, so this is going to be a test of whether Musk can be held accountable 
for the the response of his share price in in the face of a tweet. Musk is somebody who uses Twitter religiously. He now owns Twitter um, and uses it much differently than most public company CEOs. And so what's at stake here, what the question in this lawsuit really is, can he be held accountable for the losses that shareholders experienced after this tweet? Musk is arguing a couple of things. He's saying that he his tweet doesn't necessarily cause the share price to go up or down that that he there's no causal relationship between his tweet and Tesla share price. The other thing that he's saying is that he did have funding lined up for this deal. You know, he's saying that he had conversations with the Saudi private wealth, public wealth fund, that they had sort of a handshake deal to take Tesla private. But typically public companies, if they're going to go private, they go through a really significant process. You know, there are, there's more than sort of a handshake deal here. And so I think that's what the jury is going to have to decide is, was that enough for him to be saying that f- funding was secured in this tweet. Well, we know that Elon Musk certainly has his own way of usually doing things, his own way of behaving. Uh, Claire, before I let you go to another company that he owns, as you pointed out, Twitter, it seems relatively quiet these days. At one point, Claire, it was a new headline every day, and yet things seem to have settled. What, What are you learning? It's true, Rahel. You know, in terms of Twitter news, things do seem to have settled quite a bit from the last couple of months when, you know, headline every day, maybe there was a headline every hour about what was going on there. It also seems like Musk himself has been a little quieter, a little bit more subdued on the platform. And I think there's a couple things at play here. I mean, I think that people on Twitter may have gotten tired of it being the Elon Musk show every day. It's a little boring when you log on and it's the same conversation. It's Elon causing chaos on Twitter every single day. I think the other thing that's at play here is that tonight is the Tesla earnings report, as you said earlier. And it's a crucial report for this company. The the stock is down more than 50% this year. There were disappointing sales sales reports uh, earlier this month. And so I think that he may be trying to reassure his Tesla shareholders that he's not distracted by Twitter by kind of toning things down over the last couple of weeks. I think those shareholders would certainly appreciate that. Claire Duffy, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. And straight ahead, we'll look at what earnings season can tell us about the risk of a recession. And you'd better believe it. The pop superstar, Justin Bieber, of course, is the latest performer to sell off his entire back catalog. How much would you pay for it? Find out the figure later in the show. Welcome back to First Move. Earnings angst weighing on Wall Street this Wednesday. We have disappointing results from the likes of Boeing and Microsoft helping drag down U.S. futures. The Nasdaq set to fall more than one and a half percent when the opening bell sounds a few minutes from now. All of this ahead of key GDP numbers out on Thursday. Growth concerns and forward earnings guidance sure to be key drivers of market sentiment in the days ahead. So let's take a look at the year so far. For the year, the Nasdaq is up more than 8 percent, the S&P advancing 4.5 percent, and the Dow up almost 2 percent. Joining me now is Andrew Slimmon. He is the Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Andrew, good to have you on the program. Good morning. So let's start there with earnings. What are your thoughts so far? Because we've heard from the banks— they didn't buckle. So far, we've heard from some of the tech players. It's a mixed bag, but Netflix outperformed. Uh, Microsoft's cloud business did okay. What are you thinking when you see earnings so far? Well, <clears throat> I, you know, I think about it in terms of expectations of the market. The market's up almost 5% through last Friday year to date. That's a big move. And so as much as earnings might be okay, the expectation, you know, the, the, the stock market's a little over 
overheated short term. So it doesn't surprise me that you get news like Microsoft and it's going to push the market uh, lower. The, the, the reality is, is that I think there's a high expectations that earnings this year are going to come down. And a lot of that is already embedded in stock prices because the market was down, uh, you know, uh, so much last year. Stocks like Microsoft had a 30% decline. So even if they come in with weak earnings and it might be a little weak because they've had a big bounce year to date, I doubt they're going to drop dramatically because that's already embedded in stock prices. I see. So you feel like they've already been beaten down so much. There is not much more room for them to go. And, you know, I hate to remember 2022 because it was a rough year for the stocks. Does that mean does that mean you're expecting to see a rally in 2023? And if so, uh, what does that look like? Sure. So just to be clear, uh, even though it was a tough last year, we've had a big bounce year to date. So I think we're going to give short term, very short term, we're going to give back some of that gain. Uh, uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks. But I, ex- I suspect that this year will turn out to be a lot better than what investors fear. And I think it's all, Rahel, it's, it's all about, unfortunately, as investors, we look in the rearview mirror to frame our views, but the stock market looks forward. And again, we had a big decline, which anticipated bad earnings this year. We're go- at some point, the market's going to say, oh, I get it, bad this year, but boy, things are going to turn up next year, the year-over-year comparisons are going to get easier, and the market will look through this earnings trough and begin to rally long before it looks better for the economy. I see. And yet there are still there are still expectations that we are in for um, a lower turn. J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic saying this morning that he's bracing for a 10 percent or more fall. And so I wonder what the short term looks like. I, look, I that's very possible. I'm a, I'm not a strategist. I'm a portfolio manager who has to buy stocks. And I like to buy stocks when they're down 30 percent, not when they're up 30 percent. So the opportunity set for someone like myself looking to buy low is a lot better today than it was a a year ago. So short term, could we pull back? Absolutely. Will we pull back 10% near term? I think that's, that would surprise me. Uh, But again, I do think that the the short term, we've had a very big bounce, especially the NASDAQ, uh, and and there's a little bit more caution. Uh, But overall, the situation for investing is better today than it was 12 months ago because a lot of stocks, including Microsoft, is down a lot from where it was a year ago. I take your point. Always good to find a bargain. So, so let's start there, Andrew. I mean, where, where are you shopping? What names do you like heading into 2023? Sure. So one of the things you always have to think about in terms of the stock market is where could the rate of change improve, where things look bad? Stocks do very well when things go from bad to less bad. Stocks do very poorly when things go from great to only good. Where are things bad? Well, uh, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index hit an, a 45-year low uh, this fall. Uh, as consumer sentiment, very bad, understandable, higher food prices, higher gas prices. The result is that the consumer discretionary sector dropped 37% last year. So again, with the concept of where could things actually improve because they're so stretched 
so bad right now, I think it actually could be in the consumer discretion. So I think we're starting to see the home building stocks. Mm -hmm. They've had a huge, after a horrible last year, they're starting to recover. So think about that in terms of, gee, if home builders are starting to recover, that must mean mortgage rates are coming down. That must mean that people spending on the home could improve. So the next step after the bounce in the home builders is really home apparel, home furnishings, um, home retailing. Those stocks have only started to recover. And so, again, it's the concept of where could things go from bad to less bad. Boy, oh boy, we have pretty dour consumer sentiment uh, right now. Absolutely. Consumer discretionary, home builders, as you've pointed out. And it's the funniest thing, Andrew. Mortgage rates have started to to pull back a bit. So we'll have to wait and see what the year brings. That's Andrew Sliman. Thank you for being with us. He's a senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And coming up on First Move, Asia's richest man under fire. Allegations from a major short selling firm against Guatam Adani. Coming up next. back to first move u.s stocks up and running as we can see and it's all about profits in today's session with the dow actually opening lower almost one percent or about 230 points we'll keep an eye on that also at&t on the advance after reporting market-friendly results but microsoft shares they're heading lower they're off about three percent at&t's up nicely three percent and boeing also off almost three percent there boeing clearly also a drag on the dow component that's after an earnings and revenue miss Meantime, turning back to Ukraine, Ukraine's military machine set to gain some serious traction with promises of tanks from Germany and the U.S. On the left is a German-made Leopard tank. On the right, an Abrams M1 tank from the U.S. Germany announcing its consent a few hours ago, but the tanks won't be operational in Ukraine for another three months. Ukraine is calling on other allies to send their Leopards as well. Meanwhile, two sources in the U.S. are telling CNN that it is finalizing plans to send 30 Abrams tanks. The Russian ambassador to Ukraine says that if that happens, the Abrams will be destroyed, along with all other NATO military equipment. Russia also says that no one should have illusions about who is the real aggressor in the current conflict. Andrei Zagorodyov was Ukraine's defense minister between 2019 and 2020. He now acts as an advisor to the government and is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Andrei, wonderful to have you, especially on a day like today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Big news this morning for Ukraine, this news out of Germany and this news that we are expecting out of the U.S. at 12 p.m. Eastern. What's your reaction to it? Uh, It has been expected. Uh, There's been immense pressure on German government from the other European governments because uh, uh, most analysts and politicians are expecting Russia to to start a new offensive in the springtime. And uh, in order for for Ukraine to... um, to keep up with this, we need to to remain to retain the initiative, and for that we needed uh, the equipment such as tanks. So there's been a discussion for months about that, and it's been extremely um, intense in Europe uh, during these months. And uh, we are obviously extremely happy that finally German government confirmed that. Yeah, and you mentioned the springtime offensive. I wonder, with the expectation that it will take at least for these Abrams tanks months before they're on the ground, do you think that they will be there in enough time when time is clearly of the essence? 
Uh, they may, but uh, most probably they may not. Uh, but uh, from what we understood, the uh, supply of the Abrams was related to the uh, uh, Germans didn't want to be alone in this in the tank uh, sort of coalition. So the first country which uh, started to supply tanks was uh, was Britain. Uh, they announced the supply of several uh, Challenger tanks, uh, but Germany still wanted some some allies uh, to join that coalition. And so U.S. Uh, apparently is going to promise uh, supply of Abrams. So to be honest, it's more like a long term, and it's more like a long term political uh, program rather than like a short term help. Short term, it should be the uh, Leopards from uh, Germany and uh, several other countries uh, which have them, but uh, they couldn't supply without German consent. So, mm. so everybody was was waiting for German consent right. until certainly now. A, certainly a major uh, shift this morning and major news. And to that point, do you think now that we have finally gotten this approval and this OK from Germany, do you think that sort of opens the floodgate so that other nations also start to donate tanks where they can? Yes, exactly. And that, that was the whole plan. So Germany itself are going to provide uh, maybe uh, like 10 or 20 tanks altogether. But we expect over 100. Uh, and there are a whole number of lists. Of, there's a whole list of countries, of European countries, which already uh, confirmed that they, as soon as they get the approval, they, they're going to be supplying tanks. Andre, can you put it into context? You know, I believe Ukraine has said that they would like 300 tanks, even with these announcements yeah. from the UK, even with these Abrams tanks, even with these Leopard tanks. It still sounds like Ukraine won't have as many tanks as they need. And we know that Russia has so many more tanks. So help me understand, I mean, just what else is needed here? First of all, Ukraine has also tanks of itself. It's not that advanced as uh, as Abrams or Leopards, but still, uh, we, we do have. Secondly, of course, even the uh, even 100 tanks is a huge addition to Ukrainian fleet. So, uh, so it will make a difference. And um, of course, we will be working on more. We will be working on extending this program. But, uh, but even the ones which we're already hearing from allies that they're going to supply, that will make a substantial difference. And um, and yes, we expect Ukrainian armed forces will be uh, will be, will have enhanced capability due to that. And with the tanks now appearing to be on their way, at least soon on their way, what else do you think Ukraine needs? Uh, we're still discussing the uh, long-range rockets for the uh, multiple rocket launch systems. Uh, we're still talking about the air defense. Uh, we're still talking about a long-range firepower, such as artillery and ammunition for that. Um, so it's it's this war is it mainly about artillery. Uh, most of this war effort is uh, is uh, is applying artillery, and so um, yeah, the most of discussions are about the equipment of uh, either either artillery units or tanks or uh, or the armored vehicles or the uh, multiple rocket launchers. That's that's the core of the discussion so far. And Andre, you know, this news out of Germany this morning already sparking some pretty strong comments from the Kremlin. Uh, if you might react to some of this, um, the Kremlin saying that these tanks will only add to suffering and increase the conflict. We've certainly heard that type of rhetoric before, but what's your reaction to that? To be honest, we're hearing this pretty much all the time. Uh, you know, the, the world, the, the democratic community doesn't want uh, escalation. So there's a, there are some escalation concerns, but we all understand that the escalation is happening when there is no strong reaction to the Russian aggression. So that's actually what causes escalation. But uh, Russia is uh, using that uh, fear or, or, or desire to avoid escalation. And that's why they're sending this rhetoric threatening with, the, with something bigger. But in reality, 
uh, we see their full speed with aggression, we see their full speed with their war effort. So, so that's why the only way to avoid that is to win, and the only one to to make them stop is to make them stop by force. Unfortunately, there is it seems to be the only viable option. So that's why we we keep on doing, we keep on working with our allies. They work with us, um, and that that's all we need to do. And as you've pointed out in this interview, uh, every tank matters, and uh, clearly more are on oh, the way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you for your time today, sir. Yeah, that's Andrei Zagorunyo. He is the former Ukrainian defense minister. To Asia now, and Asia's richest man is a little less well-off today. A prominent short-selling firm is leveling serious fraud allegations against billionaire Watam Adani's business empire at an extremely sensitive time. Adani officials wasting no time in blasting the report, but shares in publicly traded firms that are under the Adani umbrella have already fallen pretty sharply. Mark Stewart joins me now. So, Mark, look, this is someone whose profile has been rising. It's already been pretty high in Asia, but it is rising internationally and his profile is growing. Bring us up to speed here. Indeed, Rahel, good to see you. Uh, let me give you some context first. Gautam Adani is worth around $120 billion. And if you look at the billionaires index that is issued by Bloomberg, that puts him number four in the world. Of course, he's very well known here in Asia. Uh, in addition, he is a college dropout. So he is he is a very prominent force uh, in the global business scene. Uh, but now his flagship company is, is basically pushing back against questions over its numbers as it tries to raise more money by issuing more shares. We're talking more than $2 billion in U.S. dollars. And at issue, really, are accusations by Hindenburg Research. It's an American-based short-selling firm that has gained prominence uh, for targeting companies that its founder feels are overvalued or have suspect financials. In a published report, it claims Adani's sprawling conglomerate of stock manipulation and accounting fraud over the course of decades. Uh, the group also questions the valuations of Adani's firms, adding their substantial debt puts the entire group on, quote, a precarious financial footing. As you can imagine, this is generating response. The Adani Group's chief financial officer said Hindenburg did not make any attempt to contact us or verify the factual matrix, adding that the allegations made by the short seller are stale, baseless and discredited. So this is a story that's developing here in Asia. It's obviously going to prompt conversation around the world. Uh, we have a brand new write-up right now on CNN.com. It will give you some of the backstory here as well. Rahel. Uh, it's a good point, Mark, that usually when Hindenburg puts out a report like this, it sparks at the very least conversation and oftentimes more stories and oftentimes more research and hopefully <laughs> more answers. Mark Stewart, thank you. Never say never to selling your music catalog. Justin Bieber, not sorry for inking a $200 million deal for the rights to his publishing and artist royalties. That's according to Billboard. Rolling Stone saying it is the most lucrative sale by any artist of Bieber's generation. And I'm sure it will buy a lot of peaches from Georgia. You just got to be a Justin Bieber fan to understand all these references. CNN's Anna Stewart is with me now. Uh, Anna, so much fun we could have with this. But let's just start with putting this in context because it seems like other artists have been selling their catalogs too. So how does this stack up? 
Yeah, you nailed the puns there, by the way, Rahel. Congratulations to you. I think most of those ones would have gone right over my head. You're clearly a believer. Um, it's interesting, yeah. this deal. Now, this is very popular to sell your back catalogue, but it is interesting, I think, considering his age. That's really the big difference here. It's kind of more common for ageing rock stars to sell their back catalogue for a number of reasons. First of all, They've had years of earning royalties, and that's a great lump sum for your retirement. And for the people that buy those rights, well, all of their best work is generally behind them, and they've got decades' worth of work as well. So let's bring you the latest deals that we've seen just over the last two years, really. Uh, Stevie Nicks, $100 million. That was for 80% of her back catalogue to Primary Wave. You've got Justin Bieber, Bob Dylan, $200 million as well. For 60 years' worth of music, that one was to Sony Music. David Bowie, his estate recently sold his back catalogue for 250 And Bruce Springsteen absolutely wins a $550 million to Sony Music for 50 years worth of work. Now, clearly Justin Bieber thinks he can get more out of a lump sum now uh, and that he can invest with whichever way he wants than getting royalties over many years, over many decades. And of course, perhaps his biggest hit is yet to come. That's the real difference between him and those other artists. It does, I think, raise the question of whether we have hit the sort of peak level of music rights valuations. It feels maybe like this area has got a little bit frothy over the last couple of years. Hmm, it's an interesting point. And I like that you say maybe his biggest hit is to come. You're bullish on Justin Bieber, and I'm here for it. Can I ask, <laughs> can I ask if you're a fan and what's your biggest song, if, if you might? Oh, Rahel, you put me on the spot. I mean, I think you, you mentioned one called Sorry. I'll, I'll go for that one. I, I'm so sorry. I am not a believer. I could okay. correct that, but maybe it's because his best hit's not there yet. You know, I'm waiting. That's true. There is still time for you to be converted. I will say my favorite is Roller Coaster. I didn't know how to work that into the script unless we're talking about the markets, which certainly have been a roller coaster. Nice. And a I like what you did there. Lovely to have you. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely not too late to say sorry for all of the beeper puns, but it was good fun nonetheless. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Great to be with you today. Marketplace Europe is coming up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.